Welcome back to Commitment Matters. I'm Mary Schuster, and we're so glad you're here. Our topic today is one that you've really requested in our email inbox here at the pod. It's all about talent today, finding it, hiring it, and retaining it, which is certainly easier said than done right now. So to help, we called upon a recruiter who works here in our industry. Jim Kellison is a technical talent and resource manager at Old Republic Title. He gives us some new things to think about and do when attracting prospective employees who have a good attitude and aptitude. Jim and I talk about how to recruit in ways that are more likely to result in a hire that is in sync with your organization. So you'll hear a bit about company culture. We talk about constructing an employee value proposition. You'll hear about the benefits of career architecture and even micro appreciations. He discusses the positives and negatives of hiring away from your competitors and lets us know what to expect if we decide to engage the services of a professional recruiter. We also talk about walking the tightrope of being honest and open during an interview with a candidate so that they know what they're getting into without making the job sound like the most miserable prospect they've ever encountered. I mean, let's face it, most of us have accidentally taken it too far a time or two and left a candidate sitting there wondering, why the heck would anybody want this job anyway? It's hard out there right now with over 10 million open jobs in the U.S., a segment of the workforce who is rethinking work-life balance and normal versus COVID obligations. And we're an industry that almost every new hire needs to be trained, taught, groomed. Plus, yes, we're still busy. It can be hard to find time for anything more than, hey, there's your desk, here's your phone, we're all rooting for you, good luck. But we know that isn't the right way, and sometimes we need help with a new approach. And that's what today's episode is for. So please enjoy my conversation with Jim Kellison. Jim Kellison, welcome to Commitment Matters. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mary. So many of our listeners, most of our listeners may not be familiar with you. So I would like for you to let us get to know you a little bit and tell us how long have you been in the talent acquisition business? Well, I'm pretty sure nobody knows me because I've been tucked away in a little pocket of my current company for a long time. But I first came to recruiting as distinct from talent acquisition by sitting across a table from someone when I was actually seeking a position. And I asked him what he did. And he said, I'm a recruiter. And I said, what's that? And a relationship blossomed out of that. He gave me basically the best two-year apprenticeship that a guy could ask for. I ended up sitting right across from him for a year and kind of learning the business of recruiting. And really, it comes down to how you influence people while making sure that it's mutually beneficial. Well, that's fantastic. And there's so many parallels when people are trying to recruit or hire for the title and settlement world because there's not really any title or settlement university to go to. And oftentimes it does come down to hiring for certain personality traits. There is very much an apprentice-style approach to getting someone end and learning the basics and then getting them seasoned up. So I think that your background is going to really harmonize with what our listeners are experiencing when they are trying to recruit. And I can't help but notice that you have a real enthusiasm for this work. You know, some others, whether they're a title settle company owner or maybe a hiring manager can see it more as a burden, either from a time perspective, or they just don't have a lot of confidence in how to do it right. I think a key element to it is mindset. So can you help people set up some ways to think about this so that it can feel like less of a punishing sort of aspect of their job? 
I think it starts off as something that nobody comes to naturally. The very subject matter that you have to talk about with people, and we'll just assume that most of them are strangers. So you have to speak with strangers about uncomfortable things like money and why are you choosing to look for a new job? What is it about your current position that you'd like to move on from? Well, they're uncomfortable topics, uncomfortable subject matter. It really gets down to the value that comes out of the process at the end that makes me enthusiastic about it. A person's life really gets significantly changed by the job that they accept through you. And so if you honestly portray the position and if you honestly portray the company and you make sure that the value proposition cuts both ways, both for the candidate and for the company, you really have just changed the life. And each time that you successfully recruit the right person, you just successfully altered the future of the company as well. When you do that hundreds and hundreds of times, you can actually start to see some of the impact of successfully recruiting the right person for the right job at the right company. And you touched on a tightrope, I think, that a lot of our hiring folks in the industry struggle with selling of the position or the selling of the company to make them understand the benefits of this long-term relationship. And a lot of times, most people have never heard of the title and settlement industry. So it's not something that they've considered being employed in. We want to be honest with them. And sometimes being honest with a candidate, especially on the escrow side, that it's stressful. We can be I think so honest with people that they think, oh no, I don't want that job. And I've heard so many hiring managers say, I don't want to paint an overly rosy picture. I want them to know what they're getting into. They're kind of in dichotomy with selling the benefits and the joy of the company and also not sugarcoating. That's a multifaceted question, but I will say that there has to be a value proposition that is put in front of the candidate that respects the fact that they're intelligent and that they have undoubtedly had difficult positions in the past. And so being honest is always gonna be the path to the best placement. I have represented many companies during my years as a recruiter. And some of them, the honest hard facts are, this company is gonna break your back. They're literally gonna work you half to death. You're gonna make a ton of money. And if you stay for two years, that's probably gonna be a success. Or this company is just roses and rainbows and unicorns all the time. You're gonna love it here. They don't pay as much, but they really respect your work-life balance and there's not gonna to be too much that's gonna interfere with your normal 40-hour work week. People can adjust to just about anything as long as you're straight with them about what the facts are. And I've had, by the way, clients that match both of those. I've had the backbreakers and I've had the unicorns and rainbows too, but not everybody's gonna be the right fit for either one of those understanding the environment that you're recruiting for is really, really important and not wasting people's times by trying to sugarcoat what your second part of your question obviously was, how do you portray it honestly without scaring people away? And I think that most of the time when people leave a job, they're not quitting the job or the company, they're quitting their boss. People want to know that the boss that they're going to be working for, their supervisor or their manager is going to be the kind of person that's going to make them want to do their best work. So an accurate portrayal of the position, an accurate portrayal of the work-life balance, along with a manager who inspires confidence and demonstrates that he or she is interested in the candidate and their development is really the best way that you can both be honest and ethical and still get somebody to the finish line at the end of the recruiting process. I'm going to pull at a couple of threads that you mentioned there. In your first part, that you were kind of describing 
describing company culture. And I think that that's one people struggle with of finding a cultural fit because that can mean different things to different people. And another hurdle there is if you're going to hire someone who not only is potential skill fit, you have to think about how they're going to be in your culture. And kind of the first step in that, I would think, is knowing what your company culture is or you want to be. So how do you address less tangible aspects Culture fit is something I try to stay away from entirely. I want the best person for the position, irrespective of any kind of way that they fit together. I would encourage oftentimes to go outside of your comfort zone. Who's going to get the job done best? Who's going to be there and not be a poison pill, right? I mean, we all know the poison pill, the person that poisons any environment that they're in. The poison pill people are out there and we have to be always on our guard for them. Mm -hmm. But I would say... Forget about company culture and focus on what the individual brings. My direct supervisor often tells me, and I agree 100%, attitude and aptitude is what we're hiring for. Mm -hmm. And especially in an industry like ours, where the first time they may even become aware of the existence of our industry is either because you're somebody's son or daughter who happened to be in the business already, or you accidentally stumbled into a title office by mistake when you were looking for the library. Mm -hmm. But you're right. It's a real gap that nobody knows what this is. And 90% of our business is under the hood. Huge. Yep. Uh, they know about signing the contract on the day of choosing the house. And they know about the closing. But everything that occurs between those two points is a mystery. It's a black box. Mm -hmm. So culture is formed by hiring the people who do the best work and not necessarily the people that you would invite over to your house for a barbecue. Mm -hmm. Corporate cultures exist and they are created by their leaders. But I think that in terms of making decisions about hiring, think more about who can do the job the best and let the rest work itself out. Well, I really appreciate that response and that view of looking at it because I think when we tend to hire to our culture, it does keep us in a comfort zone that may or may not be the most effective. Would you recommend asking a candidate, what does a good manager act like for you? I think we get locked in our same patterns of we are going to manage the way we manage irrespective of something that we do with person A that they may think, oh, you see me and you appreciate me and that's great. Person B, it might be off the mark. So do you ask in an interview, what does a successful relationship with your supervisor look like? I think I would really turn it around and say, what would you want? from the ideal manager, sort of along the same vein of what you just said. But again, recruiting is always making it about the candidate. As a recruiter, I work for this company. I'm here to recruit people. And so what I commonly do is try to make it about the candidate. What's gonna look like a success? 90 days, six months, five years from now, and how would you wanna interact with your manager? Do you like to be left alone to your own devices? Do you like to be mentored through the entire training process? Everybody's got a different modality for the way that they wanna engage. However, it's really easy to fall into commonly used catchphrases and buzzwords. Like, where do you want to be in three years, right? There's a worst interview question. Well, it's among, I've got a list, but it's among the worst interview questions. So instead, I say things like, if you were God and you could basically design and build your own job from scratch, what would that look like? And it usually offers you ways to look more into the candidate's motivations. Attitude and aptitude are going to trump any list of skills that a person brings to the table for me. Yeah, I agree. 
That's been my experience as a hiring manager for longer than I'd care to notice. Okay, but you touched on terrible interview questions and some ways to rephrase those. Can we hear some more of those? Tell me about a time when you had to solve a dispute between yourself and a coworker. The behavior-based question is a method by which you expose the way a person deals with an uncomfortable problem. And the uncomfortable problem is you just asked me a silly open-ended question. Mm-hmm. So we put people in a position where they're either going to have to quickly formulate something in their minds. The intention of these behavior-based questions is to see how you approach an open-ended difficult problem. Mm-hmm. What do you do with your free time? This is an invitation to all kinds of potential problems. When HR has to come to talk to you about the interview you just conducted, it's usually not good news. <laughs> and so questions along those lines that ask a person to delve into what they do with their personal time, always a big zero in my book. And I mean, I could go on and on. There are so many, but the good candidate can recover from even a silly question that really is not super appropriate. And I think that's a great place to say candidates botch questions all the time. Some botch the simple one, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself, which is something I spend a lot of time coaching candidates on, right? They just implode. And that is often the very first question they're asked. Yeah. And 45 minutes later, they're still answering. And you're like, oh, I was just, I was just trying to warm this conversation up. It's not important that a candidate just completely implodes on one question. What people should be looking for is how did they recover? Like they know they just blew that question. They know they blew it completely. So what's wrong with just saying, boy, I really botched that question up. Uh, let's move on to the next one. I think I can do better. The honesty in an interview situation is another thing that taking the formality and the stiffness out of it makes you able to discern the person a lot better than just the skill set of the resume sitting in front of you. How do you recommend a prospective employer discuss salary with a candidate? And when in the interview do you expect that to come up if you do expect to come up in the interview? And the reason I ask is this. I think it is the most awkward point in the interview that everybody knows it's coming. It generally comes at the end. You can have this wonderful back and forth dialogue going and then you get to that question and I've heard it asked more times than I care to admit this way. Well, I think you'd be a really good fit here, but what do you need from a salary? You don't want somebody that's going to give their minimums, but is that the time to negotiate? How do you just handle that? So I usually ask, how much money do you need to keep your electricity turned on and nothing more? That's right. No, that's the, I, sorry, that's a terrible joke. Oh, that's the bad example. Right, right, right. Yes, it's a bad example. So couple things that you said that I don't do. I don't wait until the end to have a discussion about money. I absolutely make that an upfront part of the conversation. I'll just give you an example. Okay, good. Given what I've just told you about our benefits and our paid time off and understanding that the whole package is going to be the big picture. We're not negotiating right now. Why don't you just tell me what planet we need to be on to have a realistic conversation and keep it going? Whoever speaks first in a negotiation when something like that is posed out to you, like I'm offering you $86,000. Whoever speaks next usually loses. And so the basic preamble is to say, I recognize this is an uncomfortable situation. I've given you as much of the algebra and the calculus as I'm able to give you. Here's what your benefits are gonna cost. Here's the PTO that you're gonna receive as a starting employee. Here's our 401k match, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Give them some basics and say, you know, given these basic variables, understanding that we're not at the end of this conversation. I just need to know if we're on the same planet 
to continue this conversation. In fact, I won't let somebody even get past me to a hiring manager without having some bead on that. It's so frustrating to go through that entire conversation and fall in love with the candidate or the candidate falls in love with the company. And then after all of that, you find out, oh, we're, we're light years apart, so far apart, we're not we're not going to be able to come to an agreement. And then everybody is deflated, frustrated, time is wasted, all of that. It's very easy to run adrift of what is proper, ethical, and in some cases even legal when you're having a conversation about money. This is why, for the most part, I try to keep my hiring managers out of that conversation entirely. I let them know, here's what the range of expectations going to be. And I free them from having that discussion. And there's a number of reasons why. One, while it's only illegal in a certain number of states right now to ask somebody what they're making right now, it's a great law. I don't think we should be asking people what they make right now. And I think that it, at some point we'll see it show up in all 50 states. It opens the door to making decisions based on poor past salaries. This is not really a great way to do it. And you have to sort of lead into it gently because nobody's comfortable talking about it. The candidate's not comfortable. And nine times out of 10, they're going to say things like, well, what do you have in your budget? Or what is the salary range for this position? You don't want to walk away with that. We, we do need to see if it makes sense to continue this conversation before we get all the way, if you'll forgive me, to the altar, right? You're going to date for a little while. You're probably going to move in together for a little while. But by the time you get to the altar, the money question should have been long settled. And you should be able to come through with an offer that engages them, respects their expectations. And it's a dance. And because a lot of hiring managers only have to do this twice a year or once every three years, just like interviewing, it's a muscle that you have to exercise. And talking about people's salary is something that is difficult. So I'm sympathetic to those who only have to do it once every two or three years. You touched on how unique of a circumstance we're in right now with regard to the labor market and hiring. And I don't know whether we're calling this mid-COVID or post-COVID, but we all know what this time period is, which is help wanted signs everywhere, so many industries that are begging for help. So it's an unusual time and employers are having to get very creative in finding and attracting talent. Small agencies who don't have the benefits of an internal recruiter, where should they focus their recruiting efforts now? So the title and settlement world is an odd little duck that I'm getting more and more familiar with. So a few limitations right out of the gate are that you need people in your local area. You can't hire somebody in Rhode Island to be an escrow assistant if you're in California. So you're limited by your geographical areas. You start there. If I put a bullseye on my office, how far out can I go reasonably? That's going to be impacted by things like traffic patterns and you know whether there's public transportation or not. There's only so many real estate transactions that take place in our county or our region. They're finite. So we know that we have a finite pool of existing people with experience. We do tend in this industry, I've found, to only want to look for people that are experienced, which definitely puts further limitations. You want them experienced. You want them in your local area. You want them to not be a poison pill and to fit well into the office culture. And now you've really drilled it down to a very, very fine needle that you're trying to thread not to mix too many metaphors there. When everything is gone at the bottom end of the funnel, which is basically after you've sifted through all of those variables, you've got four people in your community that are left over that meet all of those qualifications. And two of them are not interested in making a move. And one of them is about to go out on maternity leave for eight months. That leaves one. 
So what we tend to do in this industry is to pick off from each other and thereby raise the cost of doing business each time. We pick off a little more money, pick off a little more money. So how do you solve that problem? We talked about it early on. You create awareness of your industry and you make sure that the large end of the funnel is always growing. I would be at high schools. The military has been doing it for a long time. They show up at the high schools. They say, have you ever heard of the title industry before? Because there are people who make great life-sustaining salaries and work for 20 or 25 years. If the bottom end of the funnel is extremely limited, you find ways to open up the top end of the funnel and create potential candidates by adapting your expectations, being willing to take time off your desk to actually teach people, and then you keep your eyes open for those people who are high potential and you invest in them. I love the suggestion of recruiting at high schools, community colleges. We know that we're not extremely sexy until you get in here and you get bit by the bug and then, oh, it's great. But I think to lay that out for someone who's even 18, 20, 25, by the way, even if this doesn't become your lifelong career choice, we can teach you how to be in an office. And it's certainly in the case of escrow, interact with other industries and the public. Or on the title side, we can teach you how to sit down and do diligent research and make critical decisions. And that's something that will benefit you professionally the rest of your life. And so I think emphasizing some of those things can make it more attractive. But again, in this strange time, we're also having to stand out and differentiate ourselves against other prospective employers who, I mean, looking at just the signs around our community, we have fast food places offering not only a very high salary, but paid vacation and signing bonuses and all of that. My company is 114 years old, and there are an awful lot of people who are in charge right now that started working for this company in the 80s who are running and making all the decisions. So modifying and adapting the way that when you got hired for $6.50 an hour and walked uphill in the snow both ways, and they gave you lumps of coal for lunch. And you were appreciative. <laughs> My first day, they gave me a phone book and told me to call everybody. That's right. That is the way it used to be, I know, because I've been in an entry-level sales position before. But times have changed now and people's expectations have changed quite a bit. I think that we have to make it about the candidate. Here's the way in which the proposition, the employee value proposition, which is a well-known term of art, the EVP, which doesn't mean executive vice president here. <laughs> the employee value proposition is something wherein we give real life value to that employee and we invest in them and we train them and we prepare them either for the next step in our company or if they choose to leave, then for the next step in another company. I think it's Richard Branson who says that you train your people so well that they can leave and you treat them so well that they don't want to leave is really the way that we sort of focus our attention. The way that we compensate people and what they expect today is very different from what we as leaders, and I'm not excluding myself from that group, uh, what we experienced when we joined the industry. There's an awful lot of, well, that's not the way we used to do it, uh, or this is the way we've always done it. We have to reevaluate how do we attract and retain the talent and whether that matches our business model or not will have to modify and make changes based on what the market is today. I think often a hiring manager can mistake the desires of a workforce today with, well, aren't you precious? And we can just lean back from it and say, no, nope, 
you're you're not going to want to work hard enough. Work-life balance is a hot topic, especially post-COVID. People figured out, oh, maybe we all need to be working a little bit different. One especially that I hear about is, what are my opportunities of advancement? And that can frustrate some of us from a different generation because we think, well, I want you to be excited about this job. And if you manage your way through the salt mines, then yes, of course, there will be some opportunities for advancement. Are the younger workers really just looking to leapfrog right away, or are they just trying to understand what the horizon might look like? So what you're talking about is yet another indication of how it's really a full-blown seller's market right now. They don't have to go someplace where they don't have a clear pathway to the future. They can wait and they can go to a company where they actually take the time to develop that out. And I can tell you that my department just went through this exercise. We've created a formal career architecture that is well laid out so that an entry level or an associate level person that we hire into our department understands. We'll just use developers as a test. Associate developers could have zero to two years of experience and have some very broad expectations and requirements, but most of them include or are described by assist, learn, be a part of, right? So you can add whatever you want after those words, but then when you go from the associate level to the developer level, we say things like under general supervision instead of under direct supervision. Now you will design and build, right? Then you go to the senior level where it's under very loose direction. That's not the words that we use, but uh, you know. Right. And then we get to the very top level where it's you are responsible for. Now we keep them very loose intentionally so that it's open to the interpretation of the leaders, but at least we have listed out some characteristics and some scope of practices that you need to complete before we're gonna consider you for promotion. And so when an associate developer comes to the hiring manager and says, I've been here two years now, I think I'm ready. The hiring manager can say, well, let's go through this list of expectations for the developer level. And in a seller's market, you have to create those kinds of clear pathways or people will leave you. People who are early career, just like an interview or talking about money, have a hard time going to their boss and say, you know what, I think I'm worth more and I want to raise or I'm thinking about making a move. These days, they're more likely to just go make a move. Mm -hmm. And so we need to make sure that to the extent possible that people understand where they are in the process and in the career architecture. People today in early career status require more frequent feedback with a greater level of intensity and there's also this myth out there that everybody wants a trophy for having done nothing. And I can tell you personally, in the last year, I've probably hired 15 people that were under the age of 25. And they have been outstanding communicators, hard workers. I think that those from my generation have tended to stereotype a little bit. They want more frequent feedback and they want to know where they are in their career journey. It's not them who have to change to accommodate us. We have to alter the way that we think of how to attract and retain the best talent. And I love having those general descriptions of at this point in your career and having that, even that time period with it, because early career folks don't always know what those expectations would be. I mean, is this a 10 year path or a 10 month path? And I think it is beneficial for the employer to do that exercise as well so that they can begin to have some gates 
through which they can handle advancement. And I think that would also really focus the employer on taking employees through that evolutionary path instead of here's the desk, here's your phone, I'll check in with you once at review time annually, and other than that, good luck. That's kind of been the method for a while. And yes, we have, using that method, we somehow managed to get a lot of hardworking people who work themselves to death, and that's largely what our industry is. But there comes a point in time like this where either the market demands change or your existing employees who are built that way have been running at a sprint pace for months and months and months and months and are at risk of dropping dead. You have to bring some other aspects to your employee workforce. And that sounds like a really good way to go about it. Anytime that people in an industry are so busy that they can't take time to mentor and build up the people behind them, that's a risk. You're creating risk in your organization and then you're really creating risk across your entire industry. So I'm going to say something radical here. Now, are you ready? If you're a hiring manager, the most important job that you have is hiring the right people. If you're a producer, great. Production is super important. Of course, we care about that a lot. You're going to hear from us if you don't produce. But what you really have to do if you're a hiring manager is think about the people that you're hiring and the groundwork that you're laying for the future of your company. It is very easy to get so bogged down in the day-to-day that you cease to pay attention to this incredibly important duty. Even if you only have to do it two or three times a year or once every three years, I will argue till the end that the most important thing a hiring manager can do is hire the right people to continue our great success and track record. Stop what you're doing for a second and realize that the offer that you're making to this person to come to our company is a life-changing event for them. Everything you do from the first interview all the way to the day that they start or their first month, by the way, 80% of people who quit their job have decided to quit it in the first six months. So first impressions can't be undone But from the moment you make first contact with a potential candidate all the way to the time that they're finishing that six-month period, you're on stage as a hiring manager. And if you aren't thinking about it, thinking about them, taking the time, I would argue that you're making a mistake. That's a really good tip. I wanted to go back and clarify a couple of things that we've said and how they might fit together. So when you are with someone younger in their career and you are hiring into an industry that doesn't really have a training academy or a degree uh, associated with it. So you can't always really look to a previous role or a GPA or anything like that or a certification. They don't arrive at our door with those credentials, you know, even though they don't have any experience. So that puts us in a little bit of an interesting spot. So what are some types of questions that can help you select for the right temperament for a specific role. I'll give an example. Our internal auditor back when I was a producing closing manager became a good friend and I asked her, how do you look for people to put on your staff? And she said, well, you know, one thing that I ask people is if they like to do puzzles, because typically someone who likes to do a puzzle is going to enjoy getting their teeth in and doing internal audits of files. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. So that's applying some general psychology and trait types to a specific role. So it's different than a culture fit. Are those things you recommend staying away from or approaching 
the balance between following your gut in a hiring decision versus using strictly objective data that you collect from every single candidate is a tightrope that it's difficult for everybody to navigate. There is no magic question that will identify, but you are right that there are some interests that could match up. So if I've got two software developers that are in every way equal at the end of the interview, and one of them is a musician and one of them isn't, I'll usually go with the musician. They show additional rounding. They show that that's actually another language that they speak because reading and writing playing music, that's a discipline and a language. I once spoke with one of our leaders here at Old Republic and said, you know, title examiners, we've got way too many masters in library science graduates out there in the world and not enough library jobs for them in public libraries or where they want to work. Why wouldn't we go chase some people with those skill sets? There are character types that will probably have better aptitude for certain types of tasks. As a recruiter, I can tell you that there is no education, certification, socioeconomic background. There is no attitude. There is no aptitude. Somebody can show up and be great in an interview and you put them in front of a phone and you say, okay, pick up the phone and call somebody and talk to them about this job. And they will say, hello, I am a recruiter. I would like to talk to you about. <laughs> so you have to give people an opportunity to get through the door and give it a shot. People on the day of the interview are not always the same person that walks through your door on day one. I'm sure that you've got plenty of experiences with that, but the magic bean doesn't exist. And there is no ultimate great characteristic of a hiring manager that makes a great choice every time. To me, the best leaders will give someone a shot. And if it isn't working out, they'll counsel them and try to bring them up. And if they can't bring them up, then they will cancel them out. It's more art than science, in my opinion. There are a million tools out there that you can use to objectively measure people, personality indexes, a thousand disk analyses, they're all out there. But if you can tell me the magic recipe, please send it to me. I'm really hearing you say, if you think you've had a system that has worked for 20 years or 30 years, and I think most hiring managers do have a system, whether they realize they do or not, it's going to need to be tweaked. It almost sounds like take a Saturday afternoon and go sit someplace quiet and think about tangential professions or interests or really zoom out again, because you have to broaden that funnel. I think that is brilliant because we tend to try to go back to the same well that, that worked for us previously. And it might again in 10 years, doubtful, but it might, but it's certainly not going to work now. How can you broaden your sky of prospective candidates so that you can quit beating your head against the wall because the previous way you did it is no longer effective? So I'm going to come at this a little sideways. Okay, good. 50% of the Fortune 500 companies that existed in the year 2000 don't exist anymore. Adapt or die is really a thing. So past success is probably the least reliable indicator of future success. And so people need to remember that because it's worked in the past or because this is the way we've always done it is probably the worst reason to do something. Continually adapting, continuous improvement, seeking ways to tweak all of the things that you've done all the time, going outside of your comfort zone and hiring people that seem to have the attitude and aptitude, but they really don't fit the model that you used to hire. 
these are all ways that you push the envelope a little bit. There is a really difficult problem in that it's human nature to want to give the job to people just like us. They talk like us, they walk like us, they went to the same high school, maybe they go to the same church, whatever it may be. But it is human nature to feel most comfortable with the people that are just like us in whatever characteristic that you choose. It could be speech pattern, it could be anything. But that is a comfortable rut and it's self-propagating. It continues to fulfill itself over and over and over again. The best offices, best companies I've ever worked for or with are the ones that simply say, who's the best person to do this job, irrespective of any other trait? Are they gonna work hard? Are they gonna show up on time? Are they gonna bring new ideas and new ways of thinking to the table? And if all of those things are a yes, then the last thing I'm gonna worry about is the way we've always done it. I really, I would encourage anybody who's in a hiring position to really flex your muscle and stop thinking that past success is an indicator of the way we should always do it in the future. I am taking your point very distinctly of you cannot sit around grumbling, wishing that other people would change, especially other people in a generation. And you really have to take that challenge within yourself to say, you want somebody to push you. You want somebody to bring you new ideas. And that, to those of us that have been around a, a little while, that can feel kind of itchy. Get ready. Are you sitting down? I think you're sitting down. I'm sitting down. Mm -hmm. People who were born in the year 2000 are in the workforce already and graduating college. Millennials, people who became adults in the millennial age sort of era there, they're already entering into their 30s and 40s. These are the people that are coming behind us. The people that are making hiring decisions right now, for the most part, were born in the 80s and the 90s. That's a general sweet spot there. And the definition of success, the definition of the right thing to do, the right way to be compensated, all of those things have changed. So irrespective of us and our opinions, if we're going to do the best for our company, and again, like I think about legacy at this point. I'm in my 50s. I'm thinking about what am I leaving behind me as I recruit for this company? How am I setting up this company for the next 114 years? And the available workforce right now doesn't look anything like the workforce that we have right now. And if we bring a, a young woman who's maybe her first language isn't English to an interview session and everybody in there looks like me, an old white guy, if I were her, I would keep on walking and look for a place where I saw some more people who looked like me and who had some experiences that were somewhat similar to me. If we don't begin to diversify our workforce in all the ways, not just around race or gender identity or color or age, we're going to bring new candidates into our offices to interview, and they're not going to see anybody that looks like them, which will continue to perpetuate the same problem over and over. So what if I am a title and settlement owner or hiring manager, and I've become convinced at this point in our conversation that, you know what, this is just not a skill set I have. I'm a great title person, or I'm a great manager. I'm a, the best closer in the world. I'm finding now that recruiting talent is its own specialty, and maybe I'm not the best person to do that. So I'm going to outsource that. Let's talk about that a little bit. What should people be looking for in a recruiter? What should they expect if they use the services of a third-party recruiter? How can they work through that effectively should they choose to go that route? So when you engage a recruiter, 
the first thing I would be looking out for if I was, well, and I am on that side of the table now, by the way, I, I'm working with a number of firms. The first thing that would scare me off is a third-party recruiting firm representative who characterizes themselves as being able to fulfill every single job that you have. But maybe even more important than that is, are they simply trying to do a deal with you or do they want to partner with you for the longer term? Over the years, and this is where my relationship with Old Republic began, one time back in 2011, somebody walked me over to Old Republic and said, I don't have the time to do this account anymore. And I made one placement and 120 placements later for a fee, I joined the company as a direct hire. But I was given the great privilege of partnering with a wide variety of managers across many departments. And so when I'm trying to decide whether I want to hire a firm or work with a third party or not, I ask myself not, can this person fill this one job for me? Do I want to work with this person for the next 10 years so that they can fill my next 50 jobs? Because you get to a point at some point where you say, remember Mary from three years ago, go find me another Mary. Mary's decided to retire. We've got to find somebody just like that with those skills and those abilities. And the personality was so great. Her production was amazing. Clients loved working with her. We need to go find another one. That's one thing. I look for a partner, not a vendor. I look for somebody who's listening to my problems and not trying to tell me what my problems are. Recruiting firms, they're not so different from our industry. They're producers. They're generally working both sides. They have to get their own clients and their own candidates. We promote those people who are the best producers. When engaging with a recruiting firm, there's a few things I would ask. What do you know about my business? First thing I would ask is, tell me what you know about my business. Mm -hmm. If they have done a little bit of homework and actually bothered to find out what title and settlement means, if they know where your office is and they have done at least the least little bit of research on you, that is a good indicator that they cared enough to find out before they just try to cold call you. This is the one that I hate the most. Need a guy, got a guy. They'll look at your job postings and they'll say, I got a guy. Those are the people that you run from. People should call you and say, tell me a little bit about what the problem is and why this position has been posted for six months. Maybe my team and I can offer some solutions. Can I come over and meet you? Can we talk a little bit more about how your business works? If they want to just fill your job from a job posting on a job board, chances are they're not the right solution. I would imagine there's probably going to be two or three that don't go well. And I think we can have a tendency to say, oh, that recruiter doesn't know what they're doing because we had these three misses and not give the recruiter the feedback of what didn't work. Where was it off? What needs to be recalibrated as we're searching? I think we just tend to go, well, that didn't work out and stop doing it. So there's a massive misunderstanding between client and recruiter. Now that I've been on both sides of the table for a pretty extended period of time, I can tell you that neither the recruiter nor the client understands the other person's world. So here's a little tip for you. When your product is people, as it is with a recruiter, that product can misdirect, lie, obfuscate, get up, walk, turn away, pull out at the last minute, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Now, candidate control is a term that we use in the business, but that's about trying to understand their motivations, what's important to them, and making sure that you check with them on a regular basis. Like, do you have other processes going on right now that could close quickly? Do I need to push my client to move faster? But the truth of the matter is, your product is people. They have free will. They're going to do what they want. 
on the client side of that equation. I interviewed three people. I really liked one of them. I went to extend an offer and the person's gone. That's the recruiter's fault in our mind. But remember that the product is people and there's nothing we can do to change a person's mind once they've made a decision about their career. I think that an important part is to make sure that both client and recruiter understand each other's worlds. The solution is partnership instead of vendorship. And so you should provide good candid feedback. This candidate just completely botched the interview. In fact, I learned more as a recruiter from the post-interview feedback on the fails, right? So if my hiring manager is generous enough to call and say, you know what, she fit the bill in a lot of ways, but she had absolutely no idea what we do. She did no research. She didn't prepare for this at all, right? That's great feedback. I'm going to talk to candidates and I'm going to say, what do you know? I think you should get prepared. Make sure that you understand. So it's a partnership. It's a symbiotic partnership. We live off of each other and we rely upon each other. And so being honest and direct with the recruiting firm will allow them to adjust. Now, if they keep making the same mistakes over and over again, then you got to cut them. There are over 10,000 recruiting firms in the United States. There's no lack of options for you to go through. And I will say this one last thing. Your relationship is with the recruiter. It's not with the company. In all the years that I did business with Old Republic, I worked for three different companies. They didn't care where the bill was coming from. They cared about the relationship and the knowledge base that we didn't have to start over again each time explaining, here's what I need, here's what our culture is. So when the two parties invest in each other, the recruiter gets to know your business, the client company gets to know the recruiter and they give them valuable information and feedback. There's a return on investment that really starts to pay dividends pretty quickly. Within a year or so, you can train each other quite nicely to produce positive results. One thing that I think is very unique about the title and settlement world is we have positions for person A with these type of traits, and we have positions for kind of the completely opposite end of the spectrum without bothering to generalize those, because I think the listeners generally know what those two different types are. And I think we tend to forget that we have a role for just about every personality type somewhere within these organizations. It just may not be what we're hiring for. And one effective thing that I did as a hiring manager was, yes, I would interview the candidate, but if I had an employee that was very dynamic, who was maybe a little further on in their career, who was a good mascot for the company, who could really sit down and talk almost peer-to-peer with this candidate, it starts to open up the candidate to a little bit more of the company personality. It's a little bit less of a stressful environment because you're not talking to the hiring manager. And it can also give that candidate a view of what could it look like for me if I worked here five or 10 years later and and loved it and everything was great, which is not always something that a hiring manager can convey. Do you counsel prospective employers that you've worked with to take some sort of approach like that? Or do you caution against it? What are your thoughts? It's one of those it depends questions. I can tell you this. When I put a candidate through the front door of a company that's just a dead ringer. It's like the perfect fit. They can have me an offer before the sun goes down. It's done deal. We loved her. She was amazing. How much money does she need? Please make her come work for us. At the other end of the spectrum, like, well, we kind of liked her. We we definitely want to have her meet with a few more people. And, you know, I, I think we'd like to have her take an assessment test and these other things, right? Again, remember that 
how it looks to the candidate. And you'd think that the first scenario I just played out was the most positive one, and the second was the least positive. But sometimes you bring in a candidate and you love her. She's fantastic, a great fit. And before she's even made it to her car, I'm calling her up as a recruiter with an offer. Now we're scaring it away. Oftentimes I can say like, well, I mean, I only got to meet one person. I feel like I don't know enough. And on the flip side of this, a candidate who's put through two or three rounds can say, well, they're clearly not that into me. I should probably keep looking elsewhere. Again, we're back to magic recipes and magic beans here. Everyone has to play it on a case-by-case basis based on your observations of the candidate's behavior upon the best interest of the company. Some of this is about a gut reaction to how a person behaves in the interview. And remember, in this market, we're not just interviewing them. (laughs) They're definitely interviewing us. There are so many opportunities. So each one of those represents a completely different scenario. And we have to be flexible and nimble on our feet as leaders and as hiring managers and be prepared and able to respond to any one of those or a million other types of scenarios in a way that's going to close the deal. Well, and what I picked up in the undertones of what you're saying there is that a third-party recruiter can help bridge some of those conversations. You know, in the example you gave of maybe the company wants two or three more interviews and the candidate can start to think, well, maybe they're not that into me. And so you can kind of stand in the middle there and air traffic control the communication so that there's not an inadvertent misunderstanding that leads to people not getting to their eventual home. If you tell people up front what the process is going to be like, then they'll put up with just about anything. In state government, I would have to say, listen, we're going to put you through five rounds of interviews. This could take four months before we go and start the process to end and you get an offer letter. Are you prepared to dig in for that period of time? If not, then we're not the right place for you because that's our process. Similar in the private sector, you can say to a candidate up front, there's going to be a three-step process. We're going to do an interview with the recruiter. They're going to talk to the hiring manager individually. Then there will be a team interview after that. And we generally are able to make a decision within seven days of that final interview. If you tell people and set a realistic expectation up front, then there's no mystery. Empty spaces when it comes to people's imaginations is really a dangerous place. I always make sure that all of my candidates for all of my positions uh, are updated on Friday. I don't let people go through the weekend and imagine what all the silence is about. I say, you know what, that hiring manager was out for two days this week, and I promise you I'm going to have some kind of a communication. I don't know what the communication will be, but I'll have you an update not later than close of business on Tuesday. Or any different variation on a theme there, don't let people have empty spaces where they can fill in the blanks with their own brains. More communication is better, but don't rely on your third-party recruiter to control the expectations or the perceptions of the candidate. They can only do so much. That's a really good tip too. All right. Well, I know you're not HR, but one of the things that I wanted to touch on before we go is the fact that with everybody looking for help right now, your existing employees are getting targeted. I know you see a lot of people leaving or at least investigating leaving because something's missing where they are. What are some things that employers can and should be doing today to also try to keep their existing employees from looking around to see what else is available or actively pursuing other things? 
I would return back to several points during the course of this conversation. Having clarity of career architecture and understanding where you are and what your value is within your operation is a huge part of it. This is where the feedback from a leader that says, you know, you're doing great. Here's a few areas where I think you could grow so that you could move up to the next level. I see if you can succeed with these things that I've listed out here, that there's a real potential for promotion in X time. Making sure that little micro affirmations are tossed out there. People don't hear enough good things about their work. And again, this is not a trophy for everybody, but when somebody does something right, stop and take a moment and point it out. A little bouquet of flowers or a free Starbucks card can go a long way. And really calling it out in front of the team that they work on is a huge important thing that gets overlooked, especially when you've worked together for a long time. At some point, you're just like, ah, she knows I think she's doing a great job. What do I need to tell her for? And I think that that's a mistake. And let's be honest, money is not the reason people leave most companies, but money is not unimportant. When company XYZ gets into my head and offers me $50,000 a year, more than I'm making right now, that could be a showstopper. And remember what I said earlier about maybe it's just easier to change jobs than it is to go and have a difficult conversation with my boss. So we want our people to know that they can come and talk to us. We want our people to know that there's an opportunity to grow within our career. We want them to know that they're appreciated and that their place in the grander scheme of things is understood by them. We need to make sure that they understand how vital a role is that they play in our office, our county, our region, our state. And I think that for the most part, leaving people to fill in the blank spots with their imaginations is a dangerous thing to do when retention is at an all-time premium right now. People need to be told where they're at, how they're doing, and if an adjustment needs to be made in terms of pay, well, then you should look at the market and discuss it with your leadership. I would say identify your highest potential people and circle the wagons right now, people, because it's rough out there. So invest in the people that are your high potential for sure, make sure that you work down the chain as well. And anybody who's not high potential that's working for you, that's a leadership problem. Either you're not leading them to the point where they become high potential, or maybe this isn't the right position. And that's a decision only that great leaders can make uh, over time. The most important job that you have as a hiring manager is to make sure that the right people are on the team. And whether that means doubling down and investing in someone's training, whether it means moving that person to another team, giving them training opportunities, giving them new challenges, or finding a way to work them out through compassionate opportunities and performance improvement plans. Too many people think of a performance improvement plan as a way to show people the door. And I would ask that our managers think about a performance improvement plan as exactly what it's called. I'm going to give you an opportunity to improve and I'm going to invest in that improvement because I want you to stay here. And so we need to look at all levels of our organization, make sure that as leaders, we've invested in the right places. And if you're not willing to have the difficult conversation, you just want to kick the can down the road for another six months till the next review, think about what that could be doing to the rest of your team. When somebody's in the wrong place, saying the wrong things and they're unhappy, the impacts and the ripple effects of that can be really magnified. Agreed. Well, Jim, I thank you so much for this conversation and your expertise. It is not only the most requested topic we've had here at the podcast, it's also now that we're back out 
seeing agents at conferences and things, it is the single top topic on everyone's mind. So we thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jim, for that helpful insight. We've included in the show notes some more information about the professional designation and association Jim mentioned. Just like being a member of ALTA or having your NTP or state professional designation, looking for a recruiter who is a member of their trade association can help ensure you're getting a good, responsible professional. We all need to be on our A-game right now when attracting talent. So if you haven't used a recruiter before, it might be a good time to engage one. People are the lifeblood of our industry, so allocating some of your budget toward making a good investment up front should pay dividends in a pretty short period of time. Until next time, if you think hiring for open positions is your biggest dilemma, also take some time to check your six. There is another phenomenon going on right now called the Great Resignation. You can Google it, but basically it's that the workhorses are getting ultra fatigued from taking up the slack and covering these long periods of ongoing staffing shortages which can take things from bad to truly ugly pretty quickly. So bring on those micro and even macro appreciations for your water carriers. Always remember that the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it. And even though you're super tired, you're also super fortunate because what you do really matters. 